And you can see the topic this morning is confronting moral perversion. Confronting moral perversion. It is widespread in our day. And we live in a day where more and more Christians are afraid to speak up for what is right because they're afraid of what people might think. And they really fear man more than they fear God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Over the past three weeks, Dr. Brogy has been preaching on morality and moral excellence. And in today's sermon, we are going to see that when heterosexual immorality is widespread, then a nation will soon embrace homosexual perversion. And it is not surprising that more and more Americans are willing to adopt this because their own heterosexual morals are deficient to what God says. Today's sermon is entitled, Confronting Moral Perversion. We will be in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, verses 1 through 26. Please join us in Genesis, chapter 19, verse 1, as we begin. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 19. If you're here for the first time, you'll be interested to know that we just finished a verse-by-verse exposition of the letter of James, and before the fall ends, we hope, God willing, to begin an Old Testament book. But I want to remind you that twice over in the prophet Jeremiah, it's noted that the people in his day had fallen to such a low spiritual level that he said they do not even know how to blush. There were no red faces in Jeremiah's day. And sadly, the things that used to make the average American blush, the things that used to shock us, we now are entertained by it. And so we are doing a series on morality. We began this series with King David from 2 Kings 11 and 12, and we addressed the subject of avoiding moral failure as we studied his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Then we moved to John chapter 8, and we addressed the subject of finding moral forgiveness as we looked at the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and thrown before Christ there in the temple precincts. Then from there, we went to Genesis 38, where we dealt with the subject of reaping moral compromise, and we studied Judah and his sin of wickedness with his own daughter-in-law. And then last time, if you were here from Genesis 39, we spoke on the subject of achieving moral victory as we studied the life of Joseph. And you can see the topic this morning is confronting moral perversion. Confronting moral perversion. It is widespread in our day. And we live in a day where more and more Christians are afraid to speak up for what is right because they're afraid of what people might think, and they really fear man more than they fear God. And so the last president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, a pastor of a church in Durham, North Carolina, and now his predecessor, Ed Litton, they both said virtually the same words. That was a controversy in itself. But J.D. Greer said this, And I quote, he's preaching on the subject of homosexuality. We ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about. We ought to shout about what the Bible shouts about. The Bible appears to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to the fact that it shouts about materialism and religious pride. 
Well, I hope to prove to you this morning God never whispers about sexual sin because it is so harmful to people. But sometimes pastors want to like to be liked, and they're afraid of what people might think, especially if there are people in the congregation that have family members and friends that are caught up in this lifestyle. And so we have churches in America that are for homosexuality. We have churches that are against homosexuality and a growing number of evangelical churches that are debating and are squishy over the issue of homosexuality. Look, how can you debate this issue? It's an issue of authority. Is the Bible the authoritative, inerrant, infallible, eternal Word of God? If it is, if it's the only book God wrote, then we have a plumb line by which we can measure what is true and what is false. And of course, added to the fact that the church is sending an indistinct message, we have our government that is openly aggressive towards those who would speak against homosexuality. And so both the Department of Education and the Department of Justice issued a joint statement across America from the grammar school to the university that said, quote, transgender students are to enjoy a supportive, safe, and non-discriminatory school environment. There is no room in our schools for discrimination of any kind, including discrimination against transgender students on the basis of their sex. And to put some teeth into their ordinance, the Departments of Education and Justice said that those who would differ with this will lose federal funding and will be sued. Now, I've read the government document. I spent about an hour one day reading it. I'm not going to read it to you this morning, but it is very specific down to bathrooms, shower rooms, field trips, and dormitories. You almost have to be dead or just sound asleep not to know that this is no small issue in our nation and in our world. And so for me as a pastor to teach about this subject or for Christians to affirm what the Bible says about the LGBTQ plus lifestyle, you are basically dropping a culturally explosive bomb. When you call this a perversion and an inversion of the way God made men and women, you are looked at with great disdain. And there's probably not a person listening to me this morning who doesn't know someone who is gay. Maybe it's a son, it's a daughter, a friend, a co-worker. And you may be afraid under the banner of love to address this issue in a straightforward way. But when you do not tell people the truth, you are not loving them. You are doing them a gross disservice because it is only as we hold the law of God up, which the Scripture calls God's tutor, God's schoolmaster to lead us to faith in Christ, it is only as people see clearly what the standard is that they will see their need for forgiveness. And so you harm your loved ones, you harm your nation, and you end up inviting really God's judgment on a people. But we're going to see this morning that when heterosexual immorality is widespread, then a nation will soon embrace homosexual perversion. And more and more Americans are willing to adopt this because their own heterosexual morals are deficient to what God says. 
Now, let me just say, if this is your first Sunday, I preached four messages on heterosexual immorality, and there'll be just one message in this series on homosexual perversion. So don't think that I'm picking on someone. And again, you hear mixed messages and denominations amongst people who call themselves Bible-believing Christians, and they've gotten very squishy. They cannot definitively, clearly, in love, with kindness and gentleness, say what God has said. Now, God is long-suffering, and God is patient, but there comes a time when the dam of God's mercy breaks to His wrath. King David spoke of such a thing in Psalm 103. Listen to these words. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Well, we see in Genesis chapter 19, God letting his anger go. Now, let me set the context. If you turn back a page in your Bible to Genesis chapter 18, we're giving, given the record of God coming to Abraham and telling him that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at chapter 18 and verse 20. There we read, And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Circle that word, outcry. And their sin is exceedingly grave. Then if you turn back to our text here in the 19th chapter, listen to the words of chapter 19 and verse 13. The angels said to Lot, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry, there it is again, circle it, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So twice over, God personifies the heinousness of homosexuality by reminding us that it has reached the heirs of God in heaven. There's an outcry. And this outcry is what tips the scales of God's mercy into His wrath. It's a sobering thought to consider that there are things that are heard in heaven's city that we don't hear. There's an outcry. And I wonder what God hears coming from Atlanta in Chicago, and New York, and Boston, and Washington, and Charleston, and maybe even our own city here. Well, in Abraham's day, there was a horrendous outcry such that God said, I'm going to destroy the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And never before or since has God ever brought fire and brimstone down from heaven. And the New Testament twice over reminds us that God did this as an example to let us know how He feels about this sin. I'm going to ask you to jot down a lot of Scripture along the way, but we're told that in 2 Peter 2, 6, and in Jude, verse 7, that this is an example of how God feels about the sin of sodomy. And sometimes God does something in Scripture just once to let you know about what He thinks. Now, if you're following the outline, and there's one in the bulletin if you're here for the first time or one in line, I want us first to consider the unholy sin of Sodom. And let me just say in advance that this chapter deals with some issues that are not pleasant to deal with, but let me assure the parents here this morning with young children that just like we've seen in this entire series, that the Spirit of God can present truth without hedging and present it in such a way that it's presented in a godly and in wholesome manner that will not violate the principles of your children. So first, I want us to see that the sin of homosexuality was a prevalent sin. It was a prevalent sin. Now, Genesis 19 is the very first time in the Bible that God deals 
with this subject of the LGBTQ plus lifestyle. And we're going to use this passage of Scripture as a springboard to address it in a broader sense. These are people in Sodom and Gomorrah who had come out of the closet. They were no longer hiding their sin. They were no longer ashamed of it, which was true for the most part of Americans 35 years ago. This had become a sin that was now flaunted in Sodom. And it had really become the epitome of gay pride. Notice how the chapter opens. In verse 1, we're told, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now the Bible teaches that angels sometimes come in the appearance of a human. And by the way, they always come in the male gender. So I know we see pictures of women angels with long flowing hair, but there's not a single woman angel anywhere in the Bible. Now, it's possible there could be women angels, but I'm just telling you that the picture that God gives of angels is they're always revealed in the male gender, and they can come and they look so human, as the men of Sodom saw these two men, that you don't know they're always angels. The writer of the Hebrews says that you can be entertaining an angel You can be showing hospitality to an angel and not even know it. And of course, I think it's interesting to note who's absent. In Genesis 18 and verse 2, when God brings the announcement of coming judgment, we're told, and when he, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And if you study Genesis 18 carefully, you discover that there are two normal, regular angels, I suppose we could say, and one who is unique. He's called the angel of the Lord, the angel of Jehovah, the angel of Yahweh. He is the second person of the Trinity. Before Jesus incarnated himself in human flesh, there are a number of times when God would come as the angel of the Lord. And so if you do a study on the angel of the Lord, and I have a whole series of messages on him in our course on angelology. That is free. People say, how much does it cost? It's free. All the messages are downloadable. The notes are downloadable. Now, if you want the hard copies, then you can pay for them. But one of the in-depth messages concerns the angel of the Lord, who's called God in Holy Scripture. Well, which member of the Godhead is he? He is God the Son. That's why after Jesus incarnates himself at Bethlehem, you never see the angel of the Lord again appear. But he's not present here in chapter 19. Why is that? Why just two of the angels? Well, I think among other things, God is reminding us that he cannot fellowship with a believer because Lot is a believer. You may not recognize it, but let the Scripture interpret the Scripture. And in 2 Peter 2, we learn that Lot was in God's eyes a righteous man. He was a saved individual. And God can't fellowship with a believer who's out of fellowship with him. But in saying that, neither does God abandon those whom he loves. He does not forsake a true child of God. God still loved him, and so he sent these two angels. Again, verse 1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now that phrase, sitting in the gate, speaks volumes because it was in the gate where the city fathers, where city business and legal matters took place. And there are many examples in Scripture, especially, say, the book of Ruth. In either case, that tells me that Lot is entrenched in the leadership of this place. He is in a point of prominence. He has pledged himself as a city father to preserve and uh, to affirm the laws of Sodom. 
That's the decision he made. Now, understand when Lot moved into this city, it wasn't this great place, and he's a city father, and it turns wicked. It was already a wicked place. Listen to these words from Genesis 13, 13. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And if you study Lot's life, if you remember, he starts on the outskirts of Sodom, and that's what happens. You know, we, we play with sin. We see how close we can get to it without sinning. And after a while, it kind of anesthetizes you. And by the time you reach Genesis 19, he's a city father there in the gates. And so he's sitting here in the gate, and he notices these two angels. And we're told when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your way. Now, he has no idea what their mission is. He knows there are angels, but he thinks maybe they're just passing through as tourists, as businessmen. And they said, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. They said, in essence, we'll just camp out tonight. Thank you, but no thank you for your hospitality. Now, knowing the immorality that is so prevalent in Sodom, Lot knew that was not a wise or a safe thought. And so these guys are really testing Lot. We read in verse 3, yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So far, so good, but what follows is shocking. It's deviant, wicked, immoral behavior some of the most deviant behavior recorded in Scripture. Look at verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Now, don't miss that. I'm calling this a prevalent sin. Men from all over the city, from every quarter, all ages, young and old alike. The wickedness was like leaven. It had permeated the culture, and that's what's happening in America. It's permeating our culture. Americans are more and more willing to accept this lifestyle as normal. And it shouldn't surprise us. If you're living a sexually compromised life as a heterosexual, how can you point the finger at a homosexual? And if you go home and you dull your mind week after week after week on sexual immorality and even homosexuality that is now being portrayed even on channels like Hallmark in the commercials and in one wedding that they recently introduced in one of their storylines, if you feed on this week after week and month after month, the things that you will entertain yourself in before long you will embrace. Now understand, all across America there are There are state and federal laws now to protect this deviant behavior. But do not forget, 50 years ago in all 50 states, this behavior was illegal. But now we're writing laws to encourage it. Now, jot down 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10. The next time someone calls you narrow-minded for opposing legislation that affirms wickedness, you can remind them of this text of Scripture. There the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy that laws are written, not made, that laws are not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers 
and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Look, you wouldn't need a, a speed limit law if everybody obeyed the speed limit, now would you? Laws are written against these behavior. Look, you, your argument this morning will not be with me. People get up and they leave during the service. Every time I address this, they signed the guest book when they came in. They didn't make it to the offering. And I call them and, yeah, you know, you, you said homosexuality was a sin. Your argument is not with me. Do not miss what God is saying here. God tells us laws need to be written, not to condone this behavior, but to curb this behavior because God knows it is wicked. Homosexuality is not some genetic predisposition that you're born with. Otherwise, God could not hold you as guilty. Just as being a murderer or a perjurer or a kidnapper is wrong, so it is wrong to commit homosexuality. Now look at verse 5 here in Genesis 19. And they called to Lot, the men of the city, they called to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Here are these sodomites. They're unashamed of their lifestyle. They're calling. It's a Hebrew word. They're shouting. They're yelling into the house to send the two men out so that they can have sexual relations with them. Now, I know, again, this sin is often softened even from this passage from liberal theologians and a growing number of evangelicals. Here's a picture of a young man by the name of Jonathan Merritt. He's a freelance writer for Christianity Today. He writes for the Daily Beast. He's a sought-after speaker in Christian college campuses, conferences. He speaks to churches on spirituality and political issues and current issues. And of course, uh, he came out in favor of gay marriage in 2012, yet people continued to let him write for places like Christianity Today, which tells you something about the magazine and its compromise. Sadly, he's the son of a, of a pastor that really loves Christ, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, James Merritt. But he came out on August the 4th, just last month, on his birthday, as officially saying what people thought, that he was gay. And so he gave this post on Instagram. Let me read it to you. Today is my 39th birthday, which means I get one more trip around the sun before entering my next decade. I want to enter the second half of my life with more authenticity, alignment, and integrity than I exhibited in the first half. So today, I'm raising a glass to my full and complete self, a gay man, beloved by God, who has endured the worst the world could throw at him and fought his way to health and wholeness. Now here is Andy Stanley's response, a pastor of a large church in the Atlanta area. Many of you know him. I never allowed Andy Stanley's teaching to come in this church. ABF's leaders would ask me in decades, it's, he's never coming in. And some accused me of judgmental. One left the church over it. But he proved himself to be a liberal, didn't he? Denying the authority of the Old Testament. And he said this on the day that Merritt wrote these words. He said, happy birthday, Jonathan. I'm so proud of you. I'm so honored to know you. 
can't wait to see what God will accomplish through you in this season. Now I'm on Instagram. You'll never find me there because it's a code name because it's only for my kids and my grandchildren. And I almost never get into the fray of this stuff. It's just a waste of time. Like my son Jordan reminded me yesterday. He said, Dad, it's like casting your pearl before swine in most cases. But there were so many evangelical pastors who didn't call him to repentance. And so I wrote, happy birthday, Jonathan. I'm so proud of you. I'm so honored to know you. Excuse me, that's Andy Stanley's. <laughs> it was a short night. I don't usually sleep too well on Saturday nights. I usually get about two to three hours of sleep. Let me write what I wrote. God does love you and can forgive you, Jonathan. But you were not born this way, but you can be born again by the grace of God and changed. Praying for you today, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Well, I'll tell you, that, that, opened a, that opened a firestorm. You know, they came out of the woodwork. And all these pastors and Christian leaders saying, happy birthday, when they should have said, you know, I'm glad it's your birthday. And I can't imagine how brokenhearted his father is. But they should have said, Jonathan, it's evil, and you need to repent. Now, sadly, numerous so-called evangelicals affirmed his decision, and we have theological liberals today who wouldn't even claim to be evangelical, and they'll argue away passages that deal with the sin, and they'll use texts like Ezekiel 16. However, again, the Scripture is clear. In Jude 7, he calls this sin of homosexuality gross immorality. I want you to jot down Ezekiel 16, 48 to 50. Ezekiel 16, 48 to 50. They say that the sin of Sodom was that there was a relationship that was sought with the men of Sodom that was not invited by the two men, the two angels that came into Lot's house. And so they say that the sin of Sodom was a sin of a lack of hospitality. And they use Ezekiel 16. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, have not done as you and your daughters have done. And of course, they're going to remind the reader that the word homosexual doesn't appear in this text, and that's how they twist the Scriptures. Remember, Peter said they twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. So God outlines for us the sins of Sodom. The first sin he mentions is pride, or the King James says arrogance. The Bible says that God is opposed to the proud. And I fear that some people listening to me today will not become a Christian. Why? Because they're proud. They think that somehow they can earn heaven and please God through their own human effort and merit, and you cannot. If you would like to listen again to today's sermon or any past messages in this series, you can use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. 
and requesting program Confronting Moral Perversion. Remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.